episode 110 of the TruthQuest podcast, the truth about how to save America from itself. Before we get started, I want to ask you to do me a favor and share the show. If you're on social media and topics such as George Floyd, Michael Flynn, vote by mail, political blasphemy and heresy, or the outrage culture comes up, please share the topic-specific TruthQuest podcast with your debate partner. Episodes are available on iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podbean.com. The video versions of the podcast are available on BitChute.com, Brighteon.com, and ThinkSpot. If you are listening to this on the Apple Podcast app, please take a moment and scroll down on the podcast page and give it a five-star rating. Another way you can help grow the show is to throw a small donation my way at the TruthQuest podcast patronage page. All donations will be used to drive awareness of the podcast through Facebook and Twitter advertising. See this episode's show notes page at truthquest.podbean.com for details. And finally, please join the conversation on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. So before we dive into today's episode, I want to encourage you to listen to episodes number 87 and 88, The Truth About Secession Part 1 and 2. I wouldn't necessarily say they are prerequisites for this episode, but if you want to have a deep understanding of this topic, you should definitely give those a listen. Also, episode 3 and episode 19 will be two good episodes to provide some background. And finally, the two episodes I did on Abraham Lincoln, number 98 and number 99, will help solidify some of the arguments I'm making. So let's get started. If you were to ask 100 people if they think America is healthy, whether that be culturally, financially, spiritually, educationally, racially, or constitutionally, I would be willing to bet that 90 plus people would respond in the negative. And I fully agree with that assessment. If you look back at previous 100 plus episodes of the Truth Quest podcast, you will see lots of episodes where I make that point abundantly clear. But I don't like to just complain or point out the obvious. I prefer to find and offer solutions. Otherwise, if there's no solution, then we're just left feeling helpless and frustrated, which is really how the establishment would want us to feel. So hopefully you are thinking, okay, what's your solution to save America from itself? I believe the only thing that can save America from itself is to have several states secede from the Union, cut ties with the mothership and form their own country, just like we did from Britain back in the 18th century, just like Britain did with the European Union recently with Brexit. Just like the first nine states that ratified the Constitution seceded from the Union that they had created just 10 years earlier, with the Articles of Confederation. The remaining four states were left with three options. Number one, they could either join the first nine under the new constitution, or two, they could create their own new union with the four of them, or they could stay under the Articles of Confederation. There is lots of seceding going on in American history. Back to my point, it's time for a divorce due to irreconcilable differences and breach of contract, as I will explain in a minute. So I want to use this episode to start a serious dialogue, to start a conversation. I'm going to do my best to lay the groundwork for state secession in the 21st century, and what I would ask you is to comment, add to the conversation on whatever platform you're consuming this episode on, whether that be on Podbean, Brighteon, or BitChute, ThinkSpot, Google Play, wherever. Probably the best place to do it would be on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. I would like to gather enough information and suggestions to give some enterprising state legislator all the ammunition he or she needs to begin drafting some preliminary legislation addressing their state's secession. 
So let me get started with some reasons why you should strongly consider or endorse state secession. Let's start at the top of the house with the executive and legislative branches in D.C. How can I describe them? How about overreaching, arrogant, waste-ridden, inefficient, unresponsive to their constituents, corrupt, controlled by special interests, obsessed with re-election, the architects of crony capitalism, irresponsible, unaccountable, out of control, they break their own rules, with the unseating of incumbents virtually impossible, career politicians in D.C. now plague us, and along with them comes thousands of lobbyists and interest groups fraught with millions and sometimes billions of dollars to throw around. On top of that, Congress long ago abdicated their duties to check the power of the executive branch. What control do we in the states have over this? How about our monetary system? Besides being on the verge of collapse, everything's hunky-dory. Our national debt is over $27 trillion, and five times that with unfunded liabilities. In short order, the U.S. dollar will cease to be the world's reserve currency. The Federal Monetary Authority, the Federal Reserve, is purposely debasing the dollar following a system known as MMT, Modern Monetary Theory. They're causing inflation while leading the country into bankruptcy with their manipulation of the monetary system via perpetual zero interest rate policy. And, of course, the printing of trillions of dollars. What control do we in the states have over this? How about spending at the federal level? It's been out of control for decades. Have you ever heard of a budget cut for a single federal program or agency? Have you ever heard a single federal program or agency being eliminated or abolished? The government spends more money each year than the revenue it takes in. What control do we in the states have over this? What about the judiciary? Well, rather than interpreting the Constitution, it constantly legislates from the bench and creates constitutional rights out of thin air, using its own concocted precedent. I don't care how many judges Trump has been able to appoint. The federal courts are infested with partisan hacks who legislate from the bench. The Supreme Court has been off the rails for well over a century, killing the Constitution one bad precedent after another. The Incorporation Doctrine, Commerce Clause bastardization, segregation, fugitive slave laws, Dred Scott, the internment of Japanese Americans, privacy, abortion, marriage, eminent domain, stop and frisk, asset forfeiture, religion, Obamacare. The list goes on and on and on. We have justices who do not even cite the Constitution in their opinions. Rather, they literally insert their own feelings, prejudices, and thoughts into their legal opinions. We have a chief justice who essentially rewrote a piece of legislation in order to justify its constitutionality. How can a citizen with a conscience continue to be a citizen of a country whose highest court and major political party endorses the killing of innocent babies in the womb? I know I bring the abortion topic up often, but really, that reason alone brings enough evil to the table to justify secession. So here again I ask the question, what control do we in the states have over the federal court system? Patrick Henry once said, The Constitution is not an instrument for the government to restrain the people. It is an instrument for the people to restrain the government. If I've said it once, I've said it 50 times here on the podcast. We live in a post-constitutional America. 
We are ruled by and through judicial activism, executive orders, and government rules and regulations written and enforced by unelected bureaucrats. The idea that if the Constitution is silent on an issue, then the federal government should have nothing to do with it is a foreign concept to modern Americans. I'm going to have much more to say on this topic, but suffice it to say, we do not live under the rules of the game as clearly documented in the Constitution, as written and as ratified, and therefore, we are no longer obligated to remain in the union created by that document. The living, breathing document argument is refuted by the very existence of the United States Constitution. We fought to get away from the living, breathing, ever-changing British Constitution. The Founding Fathers put everything in writing, required each state or colony to ratify it, and added a rather rigorous amendment process to purposely avoid the living, breathing problem. Have you ever stopped to consider the fact that the federal government has a 100% failure rate? Right, left, conservative, liberal, libertarians all agree. It's inefficient, full of fraud, full of repetition, full of waste. Name the agency, name the program, and this rule applies. It's just the nature of the beast. Frankly, it's too big to succeed. Pause the podcast and think about any federal program or initiative. Can you th make a claim that any of them were or are successful? How about the war on poverty or the war on drugs? Obamacare, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, military involvements all over the globe, COVID-19 response, FEMA's record responding to natural disasters, the TSA, Amtrak, the Post Office, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, the Department of fill-in-the-blank. Can you find any success stories anywhere? Why do you think the founders wanted to limit the Fed's size and power? And finally, we have one of the two major political parties here in America that is actively pursuing policies that will not only garner power for them, but will expedite the demise of the country. Think about it. The National Democratic Party wants to eliminate the Electoral College. Check out episode 34 about that. And they are pushing the fraud-ridden vote-by-mail scheme to set up stealing the next election. Check out episode 104 about that. Did we ask for this? Did we authorize this? What's the point in remaining in a union in which the elections are rigged? Do you really think that the leaders of the National Democratic Party are interested in coexisting with the rest of us? Leftists in America are not interested in having conversations with us. They despise us. They claim the country is systemically racist. They want to defund the police. They want to control every aspect of our lives. They promote socialism and Marxism, for crying out loud. They're completely intolerant of people with differing views than themselves, so much so that they will use any number of maneuvers to silence you if you articulate an opinion that's not on their 3x5 card of allowable opinion. What do you think cancel culture is all about? Shadow banning, fact-checking social media posts, what about the burning, vandalizing, and looting that we see? What about uninviting or shouting down speakers on college campuses? Have you ever heard of the term doxing? What about demonetizing your content on social media? Or just removing your content from Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube? They're doing it to the President of the United States. Google regularly manipulates search results. They call for people to be fired, and of course, the name-calling. Oh, the name-calling. Zero xenophobe, a racist, a sexist, a homophobe, a bigot, on and on and on. Former disgraced 
Democratic vice presidential candidate John Edwards was right. There are two Americas. One just wants to be left alone with a government that stays in its lane, protects our rights, and follows the Constitution. The other apparently wants to destroy the system known as the United States of America. I repeat, these people are not interested in coexisting. Why should the rest of us be forced to endure? There is no need for the rest of us to stay connected to these others. They don't want us around anyway. I say we give them what they want. So that's a little bit about why we should secede. Now let's briefly touch on what secession really is, because the disinformation that you will hear and read about the S word will make your head spin. There are two primary explanations of secession. The first entails the idea of natural law or self-determination. So natural law and natural rights are considered rights endowed by our creator, as echoed in the Declaration of Independence. In other words, they are natural. They are there for everyone, regardless of their situation or life circumstances, or where they live. These rights cannot be taken away by any government. If you prefer, they are God-given rights, and as is often said, what God gives, man cannot take away. So let's think about the United States federal government in these terms. You tell me if you think they are protecting our natural rights, or do they have a profound disdain for them? Think about all the examples I just cited a minute ago. In my opinion, the strongest argument for secession is based on the compact theory, which, come to think of it, I'm not exactly sure why it's called a theory because it's a fact. Nonetheless, the more persuasive rationale for secession is the idea of breach of contract, or like I said earlier, divorce due to irreconcilable differences. Contrary to what you may think, the United States is not one nation under God, and it is not indivisible. It is not a single entity. It is a collection of sovereign states. The Declaration of Independence speaks of free and independent states. And what Jefferson means by states in the Declaration is places like France, Spain, Virginia, Massachusetts, and North Carolina. And one final piece of evidence. Britain acknowledged 13 sovereign states in the Treaty of Paris. Again, not one nation. See, individual states ratified the Constitution. Why did it need to be ratified? because the Constitution is a contract, or a compact, and the states had to essentially sign the contract via ratification. So the states agreed to this contract as written, and, as with any contract, if the contract gets breached, the states are no longer a party to that contract. It's as simple as that. The federal government is a subordinate agent to the states. Remember, the states created the federal government, and presumably the states can annul it or ignore it. The Constitution would never have been ratified if the people of the states thought they were stuck in the Union if the federal government got out of hand. All of this history and common sense is lost on most modern Americans. We simply are not taught history anymore. And so when topics such as secession comes up in conversation, it's easy to dismiss more out of ignorance than out of fact-based historical perspective. So the states signed a contract, the Constitution, with the understanding that all the power not specifically delegated in the contract to the federal government would reside with them. For over 200 years, the pendulum has swung in the wrong direction as the power of the federal government has grown and that of the states has diminished. So you might be wondering, what power was granted to the federal government in the Constitution? You can find the answer of what you're looking for primarily in Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. It's 18 paragraphs long, it enumerates the limited powers the Constitution grants to the federal government. So here's a breakdown of the 18 paragraphs. Six of them concern the military and militia. 
for concern money and taxes. So it talks about borrowing money, coining money, collecting taxes, duties and excises, and dealing with counterfeiters. One paragraph concerning commerce, one about naturalization and bankruptcies, one concerns post office and post roads, one concerns copyrights and patents, one concerns federal courts, one about maritime crime, one about the governance of the District of Columbia, and one that gives Congress the power to, quote, make all laws that shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers, end quote. Did you notice that there's nothing about marriage, gay or straight, or health insurance, or education, or gun control, labor laws, abortion, old age pensions, student loans, bailouts of corporations, or lending money, period? It does allow the, go- the feds to borrow, but not lend. There's nothing about federal regulations on carbon dioxide emissions, drugs and pharmaceuticals, the internet, or marijuana. Nothing about fi- welfare programs, farm subsidies, or subsidies of any sort. Nothing about foreign aid or infrastructure spending. Shall I go on, or did I make my point? So as I pointed out in episode 3, given all that, how many agencies would pass a constitutionality test? Probably the Defense Department, the Post Office, the State Department, I guess the Treasury Department, Patent and Trademark Office. Uh, I assume the IRS would qualify given the 16th Amendment. The federal court system, the Attorney General's Office, Immigration and Customs Enforcement, and the Justice Department. That's really the only ones I can think of. Despite the fact that we live in a country where the federal government's role was severely limited by the Constitution, today's federal government is the nation's largest creditor, debtor, lender, employer, consumer, contractor, grantor, property owner, tenant, insurer, healthcare provider, and pension guarantor. Wow, that really sounds like a limited federal government. With all that said, let's examine what is good about secession. Well, first of all, decentralization is always preferred to centralization. And given the federal government's 100% failure rate, it makes this argument even stronger. So what do we get from centralization? Well, you get fewer choices, fewer opportunities for experiment, and less competition, if any. Decentralization means the opposite. More choices, more experimentation, more competition. Think about your average grocery store. How many types of toilet paper, deodorant, cereal, and beer is available? Now consider what a grocery store looked like in the Soviet Union back in the day or in Venezuela and Cuba today. That's the difference between centralization and decentralization. If you want an easy way to think about secession, think about all the one-size-fits-all concepts and policies that we live under in America. Virtually every single instance is a reason for a state to secede. Think about it. Minimum wage, speed limit, the drinking age, Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, the Federal Reserve. As mentioned earlier, We have Supreme Court opinions laid down as rulings, decisions, and law of the land. The education system, student loans, and how about all the lawless federal regulations written by unelected bureaucrats? If you conduct an internet search on state secession, you'll find an article after article opposing the idea outright. The arguments usually fall into one of four categories. The first is, it's just too difficult, it's impossible. The second is, uh, it's unconstitutional. Then you'll see things about it being anti-American and downright racist. So, as always when dealing with mental midgets whose only research is talking points from their favorite agenda-affirming news site or channel they frequent, 
you usually get a heaping helping of name calling sprinkled in along the way. Because as the old expression goes, when you have the facts, pound the facts. When you don't have the facts, pound the table. So I want to spend a few minutes on each of these arguments. So probably the most frequent argument against state secession comes in the form of, that's just a stupid idea, it will be impossible, and way too complicated, it will never work. So let me be clear, I don't necessarily disagree with the sentiment about it being complicated. Logistically, it will be very, very difficult. Legally speaking, we will be in uncharted territory. Think about the different regulations from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Think about all the loose ends, state budgets, criminal codes, immigration laws. The list of obstacles to secession are no doubt daunting. Can you imagine the lawsuits and threats from D.C.? It would be so ugly. How do they bear their portion of the national debt? How would goods flow between the states? Would you need a passport to come and go? Would you need the blessing of the remaining states in order to secede? What about a constitutional convention? Just because something seems difficult does not make it an unworthy endeavor. America is broken. I think that is an undeniable fact. Why should a sovereign state remain in a broken union? The next argument that you will encounter is the constitutionality argument against secession. I find this argument especially delicious for several reasons. Number one, many founding fathers spoke favorably about secession and did not bat an eye of its feasibility. Secondly, Virginia, New York, and Rhode Island actually included rescission clauses in their ratification declarations when they joined the Union. And third, given the persistent erosion of the Constitution over the last 100 and 150 years, how can anyone with any legitimacy point to the document and claim anything? The same people who believe in a living, breathing Constitution, the same people who applaud when rights are created out of thin air by the Supreme Court, the same people who cheer when the Supreme Court legislates from the bench by ignoring the Constitution and who violate their oath of office to protect and defend the Constitution, all of a sudden these people become constitutional scholars. They claim there is no constitutional mechanism for secession. Well, my basic retort to that argument is, so what? What are you going to do about it if a state wants to leave the Union? Are you going to send in the U.S. military to occupy the state and force its citizens to remain in the Union? You're going to pillage and plunder like Lincoln ordered the North's forces to do in the South during the Civil War? These convenient constitutional scholars, or maybe we should just call them selective constitutional scholars, they should be forced to answer a few questions. Here's a few off the top of my head. Where in the Constitution is the federal minimum wage? Can't find it? Well, do you support its abolition? Or where in the Constitution is abortion? Do you support turning this back to the states? Or where in the Constitution can I find the enumerated power for the federal government to implement drug laws and labor laws and laws about the environment? Would you support the elimination of all of these? Where in the Constitution is the federal government granted the power to define marriage? Where in the Constitution is Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid? Can these be eliminated? Where in the Constitution is the Department of Education, the TSA, Homeland Security, FDIC, the Job Corps? the EPA, Health and Human Services, the FDA, the CDC, the Energy Department, the Labor Department, the Small Business Administration, the Export-Import Bank, the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protections. Do you support the immediate closure of these unconstitutional agencies? Where in the Constitution can I find legal tender defined as a piece of paper with the words Federal Reserve Note printed on it? You won't. Do you know that the Constitution explicitly states that Congress only has the power to coin money? 
What about all the wars and foreign entanglements we have been forced to endure since World War II? Have we once followed the Constitution since then, which specifically states that Congress declares war? No, you say? You mean we ignored another very clearly written prescription from the Constitution? Well, then why are you making an argument about the lack of a secession mechanism in the Constitution when you don't even follow the mechanisms that are clearly written? Hey, what about student loans and mortgages? Surely the Constitution has a provision in there about how the federal government should insure or subsidize or issue these loans. No? So is it safe to assume that opponents of secession on constitutional grounds are working hard to right all the constitutional wrongs? I mean, after all, there is no clear mechanism for all the agencies and programs I just mentioned. Therefore, they should cease immediately, right? Yeah, but the Supreme Court ruled in Texas v. White in 1869 about secession. First of all, the Supreme Court doesn't rule. They issue opinions. Second of all, who gives a shit what the Supreme Court says? They have no power to enforce their opinions, which is why Alexander Hamilton described it as the weakest branch of government. In Texas v. White, Chief Justice Chase, writing for the majority, identified two routes by which U.S. states could peacefully secede. Quote, There was no place for reconsideration or revocation of Texas's entry into the Union except through revolution or through consent of the states. End quote. Question. Where the hell did Chase come up with that criteria, the revolution or consent of the states? I will tell you. He made it up. Just like justices have been doing since their creation of the court, one bad precedent leads to another until we die the death of a million bad precedents. That's why it's called an opinion, not a decision, not a ruling, not a dictate, not legislation. Because these people that comprise the Supreme Court make shit up all the time. It's absurd that we sit around every summer waiting to hear the latest Supreme Court opinions like God himself is speaking to the people of the United States. It's lunacy. And finally, constitutionally speaking, there are only a few restrictions on the states in the Constitution. Most of them can be found in Article 1, Section 10. And secession is not mentioned there. Then there is the Tenth Amendment, which states all powers not granted to the general government were left with the states. In other words, since the Constitution does not say you cannot secede, they can. The third lame argument against secession entails calling the idea anti-American, which is an oxymoron given that the country was founded after seceding from Britain. And additionally, as I pointed out earlier, there was the secession from the Union created by the Articles of Confederation. And finally, probably the most confident argument against secession you will encounter is that secession is racist. Now, this claim essentially points to the South's secession from the Union over slavery and makes the intellectually lazy claim that secession equals slavery and therefore secession is racist. There are two problems with this claim. Number one, during the Civil War, the South was not the aggressor. They were not the invaders. They wanted to be left alone. They wanted to secede. Lincoln, however, wanted to prevent secession and preserve the Union regardless of the cost. Think about the destruction that Lincoln put into motion in the, with the deaths of over 600,000 people. The destruction of the South. Check out episodes 98 and 99 for a deep dive into Lincoln. 
Suffice it to say, I'm not a big fan. The second problem with the racist claim is those who make that claim must also apply it to the secession efforts in the North around the same time as the Civil War. I will probably do an entire episode on Northern secession at some point, but you can research it for yourself in the meantime. So, how the hell does a state secede from the Union in the 21st century? Well, I'm going to list out everything I can think of. I hope this list prompts you to think through the idea as well. Please add your comments, suggestions, and critiques in the comments section of whatever platform you are listening to or at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. So let's start with the fact that none of this would happen overnight. There would be a transition period. You know, Think about Brexit. The state would declare independence, lay out the steps to be taken, name the date in the future when the ties that bind are officially severed, and go to work tying up all the required loose ends. I envision a six-step process, something like, Step one, state legislature votes on the idea of exploring secession, maybe creating a committee to come up with a game plan. Then step two, the committee would draft the state's declaration of independence or some type of memorandum of secession. Step three, there would be a massive citizen education effort undertaken so people understand what's going on. Fourth step, the legislature would vote on the declaration. On the fifth step, the approved declaration would be delivered to the U.S. Congress in whatever formal legal notice they choose. And number six, the transition period begins. Now let's examine all the whatabouts. First of all, what about some kind of compromise? Is it secession or nothing? Not necessarily. There are a few potential compromise positions that could be explored. For example, instead of seceding from the Union, the state could convert from a state to a territory of the United States, like Guam and Puerto Rico. Citizens are no longer subject to the federal income tax, FICA, Medicare, Medicaid, federal capital gains tax, etc. But they can no longer vote in federal elections, and they lose their congressional representation. Another potential compromise is a series of bills passed by Congress and signed by the current president with contractual reductions in government spending, say maybe... 5% a year until it gets to a historical percentage of GDP, or the passage and ratification of a balanced budget amendment, or the abolishment of unconstitutional programs and agencies, congressional term limits, the abolishment of the Federal Reserve, and the reinstatement of the gold standard. Even if these efforts are undertaken, the secession effort would move forward, because you know as well as I do, the feds will filibuster and drag out the process for years, hoping the secession efforts would fizzle out. But what about people within the state who don't want to leave the Union? Obviously, 100% of the population will not be on board of the secession train. Can they be forced to give up their United States citizenship? Can they call on the feds to save them from the out-of-control state looking to create its own nation? Those are all great questions. The obvious answer is for them to move. Life ain't always fair. Maybe the seceding state can provide some financial assistance to help. Or... Maybe some kind of dual citizenship arrangement could be worked out, or some kind of permanent green card for natives. They can stay in the new country, but also be subject to United States taxes, laws, and regulations. What about money, the currency of the newly formed country? Well, it would have to be a sound money platform, probably backed by gold. To accomplish this, the state would spend the transition period trading its U.S. dollars for gold and or silver and start storing it in a secure state depository. More on this in a minute. Well, what about the national debt? Well, the seceding state would have to negotiate like a buyout or something with the United States government for their portion of the national debt. My recommendation would be to base it on the debt prior to 2008 when the Fed started its perpetual quantitative easing zero interest rate schemes. 
the newly formed country would make annual payments to the U.S. Treasury. What about taxes? Well, first, the citizens of the seceding state would no longer pay any federal taxes. That money would no longer flow to D.C. The state may choose to maintain the tax throughout the transition period and use the funds to buy gold and silver to back their currency. There will be plenty of expenses incurred during the transition whereby those dollars can be diverted. But in my mind, it would only be temporary. At some point, the state would stop collecting those taxes. What about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid? Well, regarding Social Security, the feds would still be obligated to pay current retirees. I mean, they contributed to the system and should be compensated. Obviously, D.C. would likely play hardball and try to deny these payments. Negotiations would probably be nasty. As far as non-retirees, the state could negotiate a one-time payout for them with the funds deposited directly in a real personal savings account. If the feds refuse to pay residents of the newly seceded state, then those residents can move out during the transition period or the state can raise funds to pay these folks. When it comes to Medicare and Medicaid recipients, there are plenty of private insurance companies out there who would compete for the business and provide supplemental coverage. The state would likely have to finance some of this to fill the gap. With either of these scenarios, the seceding state can withhold their annual national debt payment if the feds refuse to play ball when it comes to all these entitlement programs. What about state revenue that comes from Washington? Well, did you know that on average, states receive about 30% of their revenue through various forms of federal funding? What will the seceding state do without those funds? No more money for education and welfare and infrastructure or first responders. It'll be terrible. I look at it a little bit differently. The state will no longer be bullied or susceptible to extortion, coercion, and blackmail that the federal government relentlessly employs against them as they hang those federal dollars over their heads. Oh, what a shame. But seriously, who cares? The citizens of the new country will no longer be sending 13% of their pay to D.C. for Social Security, 3.4% for Medicare and Medicaid, and 10-30% of their for federal income tax. They will be flush with cash some of which may be subjected to state taxes, but at least there will be transparency in the taxing and the spending. What about immigration and citizenship? Residents of the newly formed country will no longer be United States citizens. The new country will have to negotiate treaties with bordering states for trade, immigration, and a whole host of other things. The newly formed country will have to negotiate treaties with other nations, who will of course be pressured by D.C. not to play nice. Border crossings will need to be negotiated, I would envision very little changes in, in the way things are today with interstate highways and freedom of movement. The biggest difference would be if like a President Biden wants to welcome illegals and legal immigrants to the United States and grant them citizenship and all kinds of welfare goodies, so be it. But that ain't going down in the new country. And when the rest of the United States collapses and people flee to the recently seceded state, they can, of course, close their borders and begin deportations as needed just like any other sovereign country. But the ace in the hole will be all the work that had already been done, all the seeds planted with other state legislatures about how to secede from the United States. So when the inevitable collapse comes, the responsible state legislatures will already have a bunch of the pre-work done. Speaking of the interstate highway system, the newly formed country would obviously be responsible for road and rail maintenance within their borders. They are fully incented to do so in order to facilitate trade. And finally, what about the military? 
Well, I would assume the state's National Guard would be the starting point for this newly formed country. I would also envision comprehensive collaboration between the Guard, state troopers, State Bureau of Investigation, and the local sheriffs and police departments. So, what do you think? Am I crazy, or is state secession a worthy pursuit in order to save America from itself? I know I always conclude the episodes with please join the conversation at Facebook at facebook.com forward slash truthquestpodcast. But today, I really, really, really want to encourage you to weigh in on what I have presented. If I can get enough of you engaged in this discussion, I will pull all of your suggestions and feedbacks together in a white paper of some sort and see if I can engage folks at organizations like the Tenth Amendment Center and other public policy advocacy groups to help shop the idea around the state legislatures around the country. I can't do it alone, so I hope you'll help out.